Happy New Year. It is New Year's Day, I believe. At least that's uh, what we have been told is the case. Uh, It's not New Year's yet. We're recording a few weeks ahead of time, but uh, it's our understanding that this show is debuting uh, the first day in the year of our Lord, 2024. So, Happy New Year. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. Although when this show comes out, I'll be in Connecticut and uh, with family and enjoying myself there with everybody. But uh, I'm, a, uh, as I noted, a pastor and an author, and I've written a number of things. And probably the best, the thing I'm best known for is a book called um, Household and the War for the Cosmos. Anyway, enough about me. How about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries, and I do a bunch of other stuff, too. All right. Now, Tom, you do a bunch of stuff, so why don't you introduce yourself and then tell us what we're talking about today. <laughs> I do a lot of things, too, and uh, <laughs> but my, my, my day job is teaching theology and ethics, and I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And being a, a person who has interest in theology, that's part of why I'm one of the three talking heads of this beast <laughs> called the Theology Pugcast. <laughs> a happy new year to everyone. Um, I hope uh, everyone's had a blessed uh, Christmas and uh, ha- will have a peaceful and prosperous and blessed new year. And so with the new year, um, I guess this is a, our first topic of the new year um, on this show, But in one way, it will be continuous with what we talked about at the ending of last year. Um, The last episode, Glenn talked about St. Augustine and talked about his sermons and talked about the Incarnation. Today, I too will be talking about St. Augustine a bit, um, building off the Incarnation, but looking at a few different areas of his thinking and what we can learn from it and how maybe it gives us some insight on how to address some issues in our time. And so that's one of the things I'll be doing. Um, So one of the things I want to look at is from the start is that we have in Christian thinking as it starts to spread out from, you know, Judea into the uttermost parts of the earth, Christianity engaging the societies in which it is now participating in. And what you see is Christianity having to communicate itself in a world that um, is unfamiliar with a lot of its terms and insights and therefore needs to be introduced to them. Now, one of the things that we talked about on another show is that in the ancient world, philosophy um, had a very large role. It tended to be something, of course, people who had the the freedom to do it would participate in. Um, But it oftentimes had a very respectable and dignified, depending on the philosophy, um, role in, in the cultures it went into. But one of the things we don't talk about much today is that it wasn't simply about the grand line of ideas in everyone's contribution. Philosophy was typically understood as as therapy. It was a therapeutic exercise, um, not in the notion of today's therapy, which is very much focused on you know how I basically can make my best life and and foster my best kind of uh, affirmation of myself. <laughs> um, but it was about the self 
being made happy in some sense, being able to live in the world the way it is. Um, and so f different philosophies would arise. You had the Epicureans, for example. Um, they would see part of the problem in the world as being we have all these beliefs that make us very unhappy. And so we, one of the things we need to do is see whether or not those beliefs should be held on to. So we have fear of the gods, and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or especially in the afterlife, so we're constantly under anxiety. So for the Epicurean, it's basically, well, get rid of the belief. <laughs> you don't need that belief. It's causing you too much. And so to accord with your desire to live a happy life, um, you need to have a reality vision that basically says, this is how to be happy, get rid of these things, and well, eat, drink, and be merry, for that's the best you can probably do um, once you get rid of the anxiety and the gods. That was their solution. Well, you also had the Stoics who went a different path. You know, everything is basically determined by God or the gods, right? And so, like it or not, you're going to have to confront a bunch of things that don't make you happy. And so the best way to be happy is to accept that you're not going to always be happy and realize that that little part of your unhappiness still contributes to the whole, and that should make you happy. I mean, that was kind of the Stoic, <laughs> a crass view of the Stoics. <laughs> yeah, it's worth noting that the Stoics uh, in some circles are seeing quite a resurgence. Yeah. There are a lot of new Stoics out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, you, you will continuously see these, uh, you know, show their heads over and over again. And I, I, you know, well, you see a resurgence also of the next one, um, Neoplatonism, right? So Neoplatonism recognized, and I think a lot of this was, is, you know, has some, some connections to, to what Christians would hold, is that, you know, the material world has all kinds of things that it's easy to fall in love with. Certain things make us happy, they give us pleasure, they're beautiful. Um, but the problem is they sting, you know, kind of like the, you know, the bee, you know, the flower with the bee in it, um, and they hurt. And so one of the things is, is when we realize that all of material nature is like that, we start to realize that if we're going to be happy, we need to learn how to pull back um, and start to love spiritual things, uh, spiritual ideas, and somehow in that we are, you know, going to be freed from that sting and that pain and liberated to be more and more happy. I mean, that was the Neoplatonic, you know, to unify with the one, if you will, that was spiritual and, and you know, the source. And there, there's a lot of truth in, in, well, really, in all of these, the Epicureans are right that the material world has its place and that the, this worldly isn't insignificant. Um, the Stoic recognizes that we aren't in control of all things and that we are going to somewhere have to suck it up because we're not in control of all things. And then finally, the Neoplatonist is, is correct that if we only live for today and for the material, we're going to be unhappy fundamentally, but especially eternally. <laughs> um, so all of these are onto something as therapies, and you notice they are trying to get our desires and our um, will and our orientation oriented the right way in order to somehow be happy. And that's one of the things the ancient world um, and philosophy 
we're trying to address that particular issue. So when the gospel goes out into cultures that are asking this question and trying to solve it, figures like Augustine, who grew up in cultures like that, are attuned to it. And they recognize that scripture and the gospel, when you understand salvation, you know, um, what you're dealing with is a term that has health and medicine bound up in it. Um, It is a therapeutic term. (laughs) Yeah, it's a therapeutic term, but not in the other kinds of philosophical ways. In other words, they're not limit. It's not limited by those. Its solution is different, and it is not merely about making just you yourself somehow be affirmed and extend your kingdom. Yeah, Tom. I, there is there is an ontological uh, sort of conviction behind each of those schools, though. So it's not as though. Yes. Um, you know, the Epicureans are just dismissive of the gods because the fear of death will make you sad uh, or unhappy. Yes. They don't actually believe that there is an afterlife. You know, they, they, in other words, right. they're, 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 right. making an, they're making an assertion about reality. So, it's, it's, yes. so the argument isn't just, hey, stop believing in the gods and you'll be happy. The, the, the argument is there That's are no right. gods. Get over it. There's no reason to be unhappy. <laughs> And when you can kind of think about each of those schools that way. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's also important to note, it's easy to confuse the Epicureans with hedonists. There's a very, very sharp distinction between the two. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. The, the short way of explaining it is the Epicureans say, look, if you do anything to excess, it's going to cause you pain. Therefore don't do it to excess. Yeah, yeah. There are right. some people who have kind of contrasted Stoicism and Epicureanism by implying that one is more masculine and, and another feminine, uh, in the sense that you know the the Epicurean is more sort of uh, uh, sen- sensual in the sense that it's attuned to the pleasures of this life. But there's uh, a lot of pr- emphasis in Epicureanism on self discipline. Um, you know, you want to control your appetites, not just give yourself over to them entirely. And there's something to stoicism, even though it's considered the manlier of the two, because you're kind of, you know, toughen up buttercup kind of, kind of attitude. Um, (laughs) On the other hand, there's a, there's a sense of profound awareness of your limitations. You know, you're not as powerful as you might wish you were. You need to accept the fact that you're frail and that you're going to die, <laughs> and you can't control everything. <laughs> so you need to master. Uh, so on one hand, yeah, it's it's masculine in the sense you master yourself, but it's not masculine in the sense that it's diluted with the notion. And I'm not saying that this is masculinity, but some people would s- sort of uh, paint it that way. That uh, you know, to be a man, you have to conquer everything. Well, you know, that's actually not the Stoic view. Um, there's that great yeah. uh, illustration. I don't remember where it's found, but uh, there was an emperor who, when he came to power, uh, had a, an advisor who was a Stoic, and the Stoic asked him, what are you going to do? And then the emperor said, well, I'm going to conquer this people. Then, then he says, what are you going to do after that? And they said, well, I'll conquer that people. And he says, well, what are you going to do after that? Then I'm going to conquer that people. And finally, he says, you know, after he's named every possible people that you could conquer. Uh, and then he says, well, what do you do then? He says, well, then I'll, I'll relax and I'll sit back. And then the Stoic says, well, you could do that now and save yourself all the trouble. <laughs> you know, so, so there's this, uh, 
you know, kind of realism to stoicism. Yeah, they. I mean, I think Calvin was a big fan of certain kind of Stoic thought, and oh, yeah. and, and I think again, there there are dimensions to these each of these that, as with with any system of thought that human beings have kind of pounded out as they try to you know deal with their experience in the world. Um, there are aspects of it that that are valuable. It's the way it's you know this is a good Augustinian way of putting it. It's the way they're ordered. They're, it's the way the, these things are balanced out, um, and and they don't you know you don't have to exclude one set of things in a in a full picture. You could just put the emphasis in a different place. But one of the things in the first part of uh, let's go to like Augustine's City of God where he's dealing with a, a lot of attacks against Christians basically being, you know, castigated for their part in bringing de- the sack of Rome about, um, being blamed that they, of course, you know, they, they're not good citizens, they're, they're, their worldview um, doesn't make them capable of being good citizens. I mean, there's a whole, whole bunch of charges that were leveled. And Augustine rises to the occasion, and uh, he's really helping a friend out who was trying to talk to someone who was thinking about converting to Christianity and they ended up um, basically not and basically making arguments against Christians and Christianity as basically being behind the, the fall of Rome. So one of the things that Augustine is going to be addressing is that issue because what he sees at the heart of their argument and their attack on Christians um, is really the expectations in that culture of happiness. He sees that there is a really a, like you said, an ontology there that seeks out happiness in a particular way. And the way in which they, the Romans, respond to suffering reveals something of that ontology, right? Their way of addressing the issue or even arguing against Christians manifests something of their ontology and their their view of reality and what has gone wrong to keep us from being happy. And so that's going to be one of the things that really the first five books of the City of God addresses, you know, the the theodic maybe the theodicy question, the the problem of suffering and evil, but also evaluating the different understandings of the pagans that he's around versus the Christian way of dealing with these things. Um, any thoughts on that before I kind of unpack a little bit of his answer? Well, I, you know, we've talked a little bit about the Stoics and the Epicureans. Uh, it might be good to reflect a little bit on Neoplatonism before you get into that, Tom. I think, you know, with with Neoplatonism, you've got a kind of the this notion of the emanations. You know, you've got the one at the center, and uh, that's uh, where, um, you know, you want to to uh, find yourself, you know, you, you, and 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 you've got kind of a distance uh, between you and what's ultimately real. And the world that we live in is very far. The material world is very far from that center, uh, and that's why there's this kind of uh, dismissal of it. Um, and now it's not as though it doesn't bear some kind of uh, significance or meaning. So you know the Neoplatonists mm-hmm. were not Gnostics; uh, they weren't people yeah. who thought that there was nothing of value. But the value uh, was found in its uh, 
ability to resemble uh, what you know uh, is more significant or primary or, or lasting. So there's a sense in which everything is a roof. So you can kind of think of it like a hall of mirrors. You know, there's a sense that the further you get away from the the point of origin, which would be the person whose image is being born by all of the different mirrors, the further you are from reality. But um, each of the mirrors are significant insofar as they bear the image. Now, there's a lot of stuff in this that is actually, yeah. you know, really very easy to reconcile with scripture, <laughs> you know, because I mean, after yeah. all human yeah. beings are made in the image of God. And then, you know, you think about the creation yeah. itself, you know, the glory of God Self, is, uh, yeah. yeah, it's all over the place all yeah. around us. So, yeah. Well, now with the Neoplatonists, the other thing that, that most people miss is that, you know, Neoplatonism sounds good uh, in some ways, but it's got a lot of really negative effects culturally. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in Neoplatonism, there's this idea that's called the hierarchy of being. You know, the closer you are to the one who's the source of everything, the higher you are, the better you are, the more perfect you are. The idea of an ontological hierarchy is then mirrored in the idea of a social hierarchy that there are some people who are naturally the superiors of others. Those are obviously the wealthy and powerful. And you go down all the gradations of society until ultimately you get to slaves. Yeah. Um, and that is, they see that as being anchored, it, well, it is anchored in their ontology. Yeah. Um, and the, the superior always has rights over against the inferior. You know, a lion can eat a gazelle because a gazelle is a lesser creature on the hierarchy of being. There's no problem with that. In the same way, the wealthy and powerful have rights to exploit and abuse the people under them. Yeah. Yeah, so that there, there's a, um, there are implications of this that go way beyond just sort of the philosophical ideas. Yeah. Yeah, and in, in Christianity... The, the, the variety of figures that were impacted by or even helped contribute to, to sort of Christian Neoplatonism, they, they were pretty conscious of those places at which things needed to be revised. I think when we had Hans Boersma on here, he was talking about the Dionysian Adenis the uh, Areopagite and the way in which that was reconfigured. So it drew on a lot of the imagery and language and hierarchy, but it did not have the competitive notion. And they did it. Transcendence was not understood as at a at a at a, a hierarchical difference in in terms of along the same order of being, but as a whole different order of being, and therefore is present to each thing, no matter where it is within the created order. And so that was that would be. I mean, Augustine is similar. He he sees as a stepping stone Neoplatonism, but he will not go in the direction of, of, you know, becoming negative the same way towards the material. But he, he, is, he did learn something from them. And of course sure. they, you know, to, you know, I mean, I've heard figures argue that a lot of like, uh, Plotinian and, and, uh, trying to think of the figures that were most influential on Neoplatonism, but they, they also were part of the, Ale the Alexandrian school, if I'm correct, where, 
the same debates were going on, and they were they were taking courses where Origen, one of the early church uh, thinkers, was was also a part of those discussions. So I don't know if they had direct connection to each other, but the Christianity was in, had a lot of impact on Neoplatonic thinking in those circles. Um, more than people may often recognize, but but either way, um, the world is is permeated with that. Now, Rome is a very different situation because that Neoplatonic vision wasn't in dominance. I mean, the the people, the civic minded Romans that that Augustine is addressing, um, they see happiness as basically to be found in human life centrally in this world. Um, and they wanted to sort of build a, you know, if you will, a city, a fortress to make sure that that happiness can take place. And when yeah. that gets becomes fragile, it's shown to be contingent, something that, you know, the, the security they have in terms of their ontology begins to crumble. And in their panic, they need to blame someone. Well, it can't be our vision. It can't be our trying to secure things. It has to be someone else who caused it to weaken and crumble. It must be the Christians, right? Well, and the Christians <laughs> who, weren't uh, the only only ones to get the get to, uh, some blame over the course of Roman history. How many times were the Jews exiled from Rome? Right. How many times were times were the were the philosophers? The philosophers were exiled as well. Um, so Ep yeah, uh, yeah. Epictetus, who was a favorite of mine, uh, sto Stoic, uh, who had been a slave. Uh, he was exiled, uh, kicked out of Rome for being a troublemaker. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. And so one of the things that Augustine wants to do, and I think it's very brilliant, is like you said a little while ago, he wants to unpack the different metaphysical visions that are behind these philosophies in Rome that underwrite their notion of happiness. Um, and so then he wants to look at the fact that they didn't merely come up with this on their own. They've been taught this way of understanding. They've been taught to love these things. They've been taught to value these things. This is very important for Augustine because the way in which beliefs and our formation in those beliefs and our loves for those or our values of them um, is something that is being is contributing to this picture of things, and I see it similarly. I just I, I teach it at a Catholic school, um, bioethics, and every term I get a final paper from someone who just basically apes all of the talking points of the Enlightenment, even though they're probably postmodernists themselves, but just how. The church should not have any of its beliefs opposed on anyone in, you know, who doesn't agree. I mean, didn't listen to any of the conversations we were having, which was none of that. But it's the way they've been taught to value certain things, certain notions of fairness, certain notions of belief, and to love them that creates a friction in their, their way of being able to hear things. And so Augustine is up to that in that, those first five books. I hope you've grade down those people and uh, write in a bright red <laughs> marker. You know that was stupid. Where yep. were you? weren't you listening in lecture five? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not going to hold back on that one. I, I I haven't created it fully yet, but I, I'm going to give it the 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 wrath of the wrath of Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> the number of times I got papers that I read and just thought. Did they 
listen at all to what was going on in class. <laughs> um, yeah. I feel your pain. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, I, you know, I, I could go, we, we all could go on with episodes of that, but, but it is, I think, I think it's a telling thing and it's related to what we're talking about because it's a set of valuations and expectations that people have been taught to love and value and their own, of course, fallenness gravitates towards certain notions that, you know, put themselves at pride in place. And, and Augustine is attuned to this. And so one of the things he does when he's looking at addressing the issue of suffering and their arguments is to pay careful attention to those kinds of things. What view of things fosters this? What has shaped them embracing this? Um, you know, I mean, maybe today we'll talk about, you know, what worldview is driving it and things like that. But for him, he really wants to show that that there is a set of affections and love. And he's dealing, again, in a therapeutic way of dressing philosophy and theology that needs to be shown and addressed. And he wants to do therapy on their supposed therapeutic cures. And so he will recognize that, you know, suffering's pervasive. It's everywhere. And so the notion that you're going to somehow cut yourself off from that is, is, is foolish. It's denying reality. And every, no one gets out of here without dying, basically, is, will, will be part of the argument. But a real quick note here. Augustine is doing something else with the language. One of the things at the heart of this civic Roman psychology that he's addressing is this notion that self-glory is part of and parcel of what makes for true happiness in this life. That you can somehow manifest your being a free citizen of Rome and exercise your freedom in a way to where you draw renown for yourself. You become a hero that is remembered, not eternal life or, or a saint that gives themselves so much although they will have sort of a, a you know, a, a suicide as, as a way of being a noble citizen. Um, but on the whole, it, there is this notion that this worldly glory and a kind of renown, a name that stays for itself is something to be coveted. Um, yeah, I like, the glory I like reflect, of Rome and the glory of the Roman citizen. Yeah, let's, let's stop there for a second. I think there are a couple of things that would be good to clarify for maybe new listeners. One is you use the term affections. Tom. And, and many yeah. people uh, in uh, our world today, when they hear that word, they think emotions. Can you maybe comb yeah. out a little bit the distinction between emotions and affections? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, emotions tend to be, well, I think in the modern way of dealing with it, they tend to be aspects about us that when we're impinged upon, become a, a certain kind of um, psychophysical reaction. I don't know I don't know the best way of breaking it down. It's, it becomes something that isn't so comprehensively tied to the seat of our affections and love, although it can exhibit them. For example, if you hear something bad that happens to some your animal that you love and you break down in tears, right? But the tears and stuff tend to be just uh, understood as kind of a physiological or just even a psychophysiological response rather than a, something that is more deeply connected to 
your fundamental nature. It's an exhibition of the core of you in the classic way of putting things. In other words, you have intellect and you have will, and then you have sort of affections. <laughs> um, and there are other ways of putting that together. But these things, when harmonious and ordered, they can exhibit at, at, at something of our, our fullest natures and manifest something of, of the kinds of beings that we are. Um, and when they're not, they kind of sink our natures. We can become like pure beasts, if you will. Um, and so if, uh, if I'm hearing I don't know you if correct, that really clarifies it. Maybe have another a better way of putting it. Well, what I'm hearing you say is that, okay, emotions are responses uh, and maybe they're felt uh, and there's a, this, that's where the physiology comes in. But affections uh, have something to do with um, our judgments, our, our values, uh, our yeah. choices. So, you know, in other words, we're going to love some things in the world. There are going to be th things yeah. that... Now, how we come to love those things, you know, that's something to talk yeah. about. You know, if something is lovely, in other words, there's something beautiful yeah. or attractive to it, we find it easier to uh, direct our affections toward that thing. And in some sense, we're saying, I need that thing. I know I'm going to uh, yeah. somehow, uh, you know, sort of orient myself to that thing in such a way so that I enjoy the benefits of it. So like if I, I love money, you know, my affections yeah. are directed toward money. Obviously, money can help out. And, you know, even scriptures say, you know, yeah. money solves all kinds of problems. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, if, you know, we got yeah. that. Um, now, it ties into the subject of glory. So, like in a democracy, which is uh, where, you know, this is so social life is ordered around honor and who is honored and who yeah. isn't and those kinds of things. What you want is to distinguish yourself and to so you have a lust for glory you want you have a lust for renown yeah. you want to be you want to be yeah uh you know maybe in a modern way to put it you want you want fame you want to be famous that kind of thing now the challenge of course is everybody's trying to get to be famous too you know so you're competing with everybody it's like social yeah, yeah. media everybody's trying <laughs> trying to be the center of attention all the time and and you end up with a lot of envy and jealousy and resentment and and all kinds of stuff, you know, even murder, you know, because people are getting what you think you deserve and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, the, there's another, I think, uh, different kind of psychological dimension here too, though. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's a sense that you, you want to have status among your peers and things like that. But I think glory goes beyond that. Um, and it's something that Tom said earlier. It's you want to be remembered. Because if you are not certain of an afterlife, and frankly, most Romans expected to have a rather dreary afterlife. I mean, they believed that there would be one, but very, very few people go to the Elysian fields, go to heaven. Um, even fewer become ascend to godhood, which you could do because of the hierarchy <laughs> of being. But there's a way that you can achieve something like everlasting life if you can do something and be remembered for it. Um, I think that that is also an important driving factor here, although one that's easy for us to sort of overlook because we have a very different concept of the afterlife. Yeah. 
Well, this, this I think is where, I mean, one of the things that Augustine does is he does therapy on their notion of, of, you know, of glory. And he is going to talk about it and, and basically show the limits of it and how suffering, of course, is one of the aspects that puts a, a kind of, you know, puts a little, you know, drives a nail into it, if you will, because suffering is all pervasive. Even if you are going to somehow um, get the glory you think you, you, you know, deserve or want, you're going to die. You're not going to be around to, to benefit from it. And others are going to be suffering too at some point in their life to which that glory really isn't going to do anything to assuage the suffering. Um, and so it, you know, for him, you know, as he starts to draw upon the biblical view of glory and the glory of God, right, you start to get a radically different understanding. One that, of course, he'll be able to speak into, there's enough continuity in places that there is a reason for, like you said, valuing something um, beyond us to go on. We, we have natures that are oriented towards, you know, we have immortal longings, like it or not. And because of that, we do have these kinds of affections that are attracted to notions of that. But if we don't have a good notion of it, there becomes a problem. And there becomes a place for, th for Augustine where suffering can be even worse because if you know that you want and live for a this worldly glory, but you're not going to get it or it's going to be frustrated, you're going to suffer more than the person who recognizes that maybe the Lord will supply you with a certain you know, opportunity to be glorified. But whether you get that or not, the Christian is not going to be thrown off the same way or shouldn't be because they're not loving and valuing and setting their affections on something that is so fragile ultimately and maybe meaningless in the end compared to what they have. So he's already carving out a difference between what they mean by glory, what we have as glory, and how theirs actually contributes more to suffering and the suffering of the Romans than the Christian vision does. There, there are two things that this discussion of glory reminds me of. First of all, one of the things that most people don't realize is that the Romans were ancestor worshipers. <laughs> so posterity, your children, are an important thing because they're the ones who will remember you. They're the ones who will say prayers to you, all of those kinds of things. I don't know exactly how this fits with your concept of the afterlife, but mm -hmm. nonetheless, there's a sense in which, you know, you, you see this even in um, uh, Gladiator. Uh, they're the, they're the, the household gods that are the ancestors. Right. You know, so that's an important thing. But, but the other, I think you know, the limits of glory, I think, are probably best illustrated in a poem by, of all people, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley. <laughs> uh, it's a poem called Ozymandias. Let me I read remember this. It, yeah, right, right. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lips and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level st sands stretch far away. 
you know, that was actually about a monument to Ramses II. Oh, really? <laughs> well, you know, yeah, that was to, what inspired it. Yeah. Well, if you read, uh, there's something to be said for the power of reason, even in antiquity, to discern this. So if you read, say, Marcus in Aurelius, uh, he goes on and on about being forgotten. <laughs> and you know, this is the emperor, for goodness sake. I mean, this is a guy who actually did live uh, out uh, and uh, acquire immortal fame, you could say, against his best, uh, I, I guess, uh, notions. You know, <laughs> he's always talking about, you know, the, the vanity of this very thing and how, how much it is a, uh, you know, a, a false uh, hope to, to be remembered because, you know, we, we will all ultimately be forgotten. Uh, I guess how that, I, I, how it relates in my mind to, to, to the subject of the Christian hope is that, um, so we, let's say your typical Roman, let's say, you know, out of a, out of a thousand Romans, they were of the mindset that you described, uh, Tom, Nine nine hundred and ninety nine, and then you had one Marcus, <laughs> who was bright enough <laughs> uh, and uh, humble enough to realize that even the emperor will be forgotten. Um, <laughs> but in both cases, you know, the Christian vision, the Christian hope, I should say, is that God remembers, and that it's His glory that we participate in. Uh, and he's not one to forget, and he will never be forgotten. Yeah, that's and, and that's very. I mean, that's where Augustine actually is going to go a lot because, well, he first is going to be challenged there because some of the people that he's addressing were arguing uh, that providence and the Christian notion of providence seems to be the biggest pipe dream because of the, you know, inequitable amounts of distribution of, of suffering. In other words, you can have a person who's lived a good life, virtuous and everything else, and they get, you know, a horrible kind of cancer. And like Job, they lose everything and themselves too. Then you can get somebody who is a complete, you know, reprobate and, you know, does, has done nothing good and, you know, can sometimes live to a ripe old age and, and you know, you know, have luck uh, pour out on them. And so Augustine is going to have to address this issue too. You know, what happens when on the surface we don't see um, any any of the difference, you know, any differences? And so what, one of his way of addressing it is, is, is unpacking, of course, that at the heart of the issue needs to be seen in the different responses to the issue. So the way in which the Romans responded to suffering, it, you know, at least classically, or the way civic-minded ones were he was addressing, or the way Christians typically did. And for him, you know, at the heart of that, this is nothing new for, for us or our audience, but it's the wrong kind of attachment to the world, um, you, you're attached to the world differently. Um, and so because of that, we're going to make use of suffering in different ways. It's going to show up differently. Now, one of the things Augustine's going to point out, and he's going to draw off of his theology and say, look, there's none righteous, not even among the Christians. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
Um, all owe everything to Christ. And so because of that, none of them are so weaned off of their idols and purified in their loves that they don't suffer the consequences of still this worldly attachments, right? No matter how much mortification and vivification going on, they still are, we are still not perfected. And because of that, you know, we're going to be impacted by the rest of the sufferings in the world. Um, and then he will go on to argue that providence is such that it is there, and you see it there in the variety of strong responses that many Christians and saints have had to suffering, is their way of embracing it head on and recognizing that even when it is unjust or appears unjust, to recognize that this is part of the cultivation of our lives as Christians, in which God is doing what the Romans tried to do to its citizens to make them better citizens, God is making a people for the citizenry of heaven. And that cultivation, that discipline process is partly weaning us from our bad attachments and reweaving them through our love for God the right way. And that's a painful process. It's the taking a lot of thorns out of our flesh. It's a lot of hurtful and painful things that we undergo that make us recognize where our first love needs to sit and what we're made for, and then reposition ourselves back in the world once we've once we started to see them from being citizens of, of the city of God. I think this is one way that the Christian hope uh, can be distinguished from, say, Stoicism. So Stoicism... Um, you know, would uh, counsel us to uh, withdraw our affection from anything that ultimately can be separated from us. So, um, you know, consequently, uh, a child, you know, who, who dies, we shouldn't uh, mourn too much. Um, in some sense, that's uh, illustrating our foolishness of, you know, investing too much in this child, uh, in terms of our happiness. So, you know, we withdraw from the world into ourselves. Um, but with the Christian hope, it's not so much that it was, uh, improper to love your child, <laughs> but that there is a, right. a, a providential ordering of the world and we don't understand everything. Um, we can yeah. still uh, acknowledge uh, our losses and, and note that they're real, that, that you know, these losses are not uh, the result of uh, uh, a failure to recognize uh, the transience of things, but that in God, um, everything will be ordered well, and uh, in the end, everything will be right. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, we do need to um, order things right. So, like when we think about the hierarchy of loves, so first, you know, loving God, then loving our neighbor, loving ourselves, of course. Uh, somewhere down the list, you know, we've got. Uh, things that are really, really important that, that we love, like food. Uh, but further down the list, you might have your favorite food. <laughs> in other words, and, but if you, you got to keep all these things in the correct order. 
but that doesn't mean yeah. that you're never going to be disappointed or you're going to have certain things that are pretty important um, taken from you, like health, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it, I mean, it doesn't take away the existential, you know, aspects of, you know, finding out that someone you love is sick and, and going to die or you yourself are. I mean, those things are very, very real. And I don't think Augustine is trying to minimize that at all. I think what he's trying to say is the difference in the Christian way of relating to that is that that isn't fate at this point in a way that that's the end of the game and that it is a stepping stone um, into something much fuller and richer and hope is bound up with all of it, even if it's crushingly painful right now. And he doesn't, he doesn't, he, he, when he's talking, for example, you'll see him when he's addressing the issue of suicide in Rome, in, in the city of God. And, and when he's talking about uh, Cato and, and who is, uh, is it? Luc Luc the, what, the, the rape of Lucretia. Yeah. And you can see him almost uh, emotionally say, look, how horrible for her to think that the only way to address her being raped is basically to, ex you know, to basically give in to the rapist in a sense and say, you are to look at yourself now only through the eyes of a victim and shame, and you cannot see yourself otherwise. So you might as well, you might as well not draw shame to yourself and end your life. And so she commits suicide and, you know, and that's sort of celebrated there as a way of doing it for, you know, for honor. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like, but one of the things Augustine is, is saying is that that's the wrong way of looking at it. And that was the wrong answer to do. And in a sense, you gave, you gave affirmation to the, to the evil act done by continuing to follow out the consequences of that evil act by going to suicide. Whereas you can't undo that evil done, but in Christ, you are not merely a victim of evil and sin. Your agency is restored in, in him to be able to, to partake of, of, of a hopeful way of transforming things that doesn't have to end that way. I mean, this is his, his way. So you'll see him, he'll see, you'll see a real, real connection with the pain of what was going on in those circumstances, but an attempt almost minister as a minister, or, you know, as you say, the good sense of therapy to address these things with the riches of a, of a hopeful answer. And so part of his vision that Christianity gives him is that human beings are not just victims. They can't just say this was done to me. And then all of my actions are nothing more than enslaved to what was done to me. But there is a way in which the affirmation of our createdness before a creator recognizes that we can, especially through Christ, um, hopefully have a different kind of reaction to that rather than just give in to cause and effect. I know this isn't where you're going with this, Tom, but I couldn't help but contrast uh, that story with uh, the approach to victimhood we see all around us today where people almost valorize victimhood to the degree that they relish it yeah. and derive their sense of self from precisely that very thing. Uh, you know, this is something that Glenn has talked about a number of times is sort of the way you rise in moral authority is by being able to list the number of things that have been done to you. 
so it's it's very uh, a very odd world that we're looking back on uh, from yeah. the standpoint of this, the the world we live in today. When we look back into Rome and see, here's a woman who wasn't like tweeting me too. Uh, she said, uh, <laughs> I wish right. this had never happened and, uh, it's so bad. I'm going to kill myself. Um, now, uh, yeah. you know, you get a very different take. Now I'm not saying that people today think it's good to be a victim in the sense of having suffered, but mm -hmm. it does, it's almost like the price people feel like has been paid for their moral authority. You know, the fact that I'm this victim, whereas, I wonder if we need to maybe recover a little, at least a little bit of the older outlook in the sense that I don't want to be even considered a victim. Uh, yes, yeah. I'm not denying that things have been done to me, but yeah. I do want to be valued for my contributions, not my complaints. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, just sort of a contemporary thing, this, this idea of seeing yourself as a victim, I think the thing that's most insidious about it is sort of what you're hinting at, Chris. It's that it, it denies you agency. You, what it says is that you are helpless and that everything about you is controlled by these people who have their boot on your neck. <laughs> you know, with the net effect that... Um, you know, there is no real prospect of you taking agency to improve your situation. <laughs> and I guess Lucretia takes that to a log her logical conclusion by killing yeah. herself. Well, and it it's interesting that when we're talking about this, one of the things that comes to mind is the way Augustine addresses it. And these are this was fine to bring up because this is kind of where I want to go eventually. Is what wisdom do we get thinking along with brothers and sisters who are before us and had to address challenging issues? And what wisdom can we gain? And I think one of the things you'll see here is that Augustine, for example, he would address, I mean, the way he addresses, for example, Roman notions of, of freedom, if you will, and agency. Because for the Roman citizen, they were a free citizen and they had, they had been given as a citizen agency. And this is sort of what is being affirmed even in the U.S., right? We've been empowered to pursue happiness any way we kind of define it. And anyone who has, has in some way historically or presently put a limit on that is fair game as an oppressor because they stifle. And interestingly, one of the, air, one of the ways that, that Roman individual, uh, what is it, that, what is the Latin word there for, uh, is it uh, dominating liberty is a kind of way it translates the Latin word there. Um, but that was a big, that was a big way, uh, wait, libido dominante. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and a lot of people always talk, think of just libido in terms of sexual, but one of the things behind it was just almost the way in which each Roman sort of asserted a very strong notion of their freedom and hegemony and ability to control everyone else's. And I think that kind of freedom kind of has found its way back into certain Enlightenment visions and post-Enlightenment visions in which to be empowered is to have a dominating kind of freedom, which says anything that gets in the way of my happiness, right, um, my pursuit of it, 
whether it's through self-definition or you affirming me or whatever it is, is putting me under the yoke of your slavery and your limit and your determination. And so Augustine, interestingly then, one of the ways he addresses that with Rome, and it could address the people even claiming victimhood to empowerment now, is while recognizing there are real victims who have suffered in history, and and everyone does in some sense, he will also argue that all of us are deserving of judgment, (laughs) even the ones claiming victimhood. And so their victimhood doesn't entitle them to become new victimizers and oppressors just because they were left, may or may not have been left out of the picture of power at another time. The kind of power thereafter is the same kind in Luke's gospel of of Caesar Augustus and not Jesus Christ. Um, And so, you know, it isn't pure power. It it uh, It is driven by wanting to dominate. I would translate the phrase as lust for power. Yeah. That's, yeah. That I think is, is really the, the essence of what it's saying there. Yeah. Um, the, the, again, just bringing it into the modern world of my idea of agency there, the yeah. one place that you have agency in the modern world is you can go after the oppressors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it, it, you know, basically, if you look at critical theory, the the object of critical theory is to replace one set of oppressors with another because oppression is inevitable. Yes, it yeah. is. It is walking. It is walking out these these ideas that you see in Rome, uh, but in sort of a different modern context that's been filtered through a Christian vision of victimization as virtue. Yeah, yeah. There's no yeah. peaceable kingdom. Well, pseudo Christian. Yeah, there's no peaceable yeah. kingdom. There's, yeah. there's, it's just uh, conflict forever. Um, and just which side are you going to take in a particular struggle? Uh, this reminds me of a book I read years ago by Orlando Patterson entitled Freedom in the Making of Western Culture because uh, in that he talks about different concepts of freedom and one of the concepts was sovereign freedom. And what he meant by that is what you just described, uh, this lust for power. Um, and he contrasts that with other expressions or, or sort of uh, ways of understanding freedom. And, you know, like, um, you know, Dominion, uh, that uh, book Tom Holland wrote, uh, he identifies the Christian faith as being really the turning point in the West um, when it came to, to this whole way of, you know, sort of sort of thinking about freedom and, and how freedom could be extended to people that in the past it had never been thought of as possible for them to to possess. In other words, there was always a sense that there were going to be some free people, but not everybody could be free. Uh, and Christianity, because of its stress on spiritual freedom, um, was able to open up ways of thinking that people just had never entertained prior to that. But Orlando Patterson, he was a interesting guy. He was a social historian at Harvard, and it was Book of the Year winner back in the early 90s. It was a pretty important book, but most people don't remember it, which is a shame because it had the best treatment of slavery I've ever come across in in, in um, social history in the sense that he, he notes that it's slavery that was universal, 
not freedom. So he takes Rousseau and says, no, it was the, abs- the other way around, guy. <laughs> Slavery was the thing that was universal. We see it in every part of the world. And uh, freedom was the thing that uh, occurred in the West, and which is a fascinating thing for him to say because he was descendant of slaves. He's Jamaican. Hmm. Well, it, it, it is, uh, I mean, Christianity, I think, unquestionably brought in profound insights into thinking about human freedom and dominance and, and the lust for dominance. I mean, the way in which Augustine saw it was that sort of the end game um, and the way it's exhibited uh, politically in Rome was basically is that that notion, those notions of happiness, fundamentally this worldly, will end up in a sort of self-indulgence, and and in the end of uh, it, it'll be a fanta- you know, a fantasy, um, and that it inevitably moved towards the empire psychology that the only way that we you know Romans can be happy is if we control everything, and everything is basically under our dominance and control. And the you know the individual Romans saw that too, and and we see that similarly. It's when, once the self becomes empowered and becomes almost the un, you know the the sacred cow, then whatever that self wants becomes you know the sacred will of God, and uh, and anything any other will that competes with it um, is is either going to have to be worked with in order to sustain me getting what I want, or if it doesn't, I'm going to sooner or later have to dominate it. (laughs) Um, And so this, of course, for Augustine is bound up with idolatry and the impure loves and desires that go along with it. And so for him, you know, place the human being at the center of things or a false god um, one inevitably ends up not only suffering but moving towards domination because there is a competitive relationship in power and a disharmony between things that results. There is no, you know, you know, city, if you will, any unity. Um, the flip side is a non-competitive God who isn't in competition with the creation, and even though it's gone astray. Um, as he comes in Christ, he has come to basically from the inside out rip those false notions of God from us, and in doing that, re- restore our relationships to other things, creating therefore a more perfect unity, even if it isn't perfect until the end of time, um, in the fullness of all things. But it's the first fruits of of a real city, a lasting city, and one in which real friendship and solidarity can begin to take place, which can take some of the virtues that Rome had, but not end up with the vices where they ended up. And so, um, and you know, I think his vision of the way in which we, we dwell even now in a place at which there are competing, competing notions of what is, what is God, as Luther would say, and in our hearts sit on them. Um, and, the Christian message is for your heart not to sit on anything but the source of all things. And by doing that, you can love those things properly <laughs> and uh, not put yourself at the center. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should probably wrap this up. I know, Glenn, you've got a, a set of uh, obligations you need to get to. Anything you want to say as we wrap up? Um, 
You know, I, I've worked with the city of God multiple times, but I have to admit I never, it's, it's been a while, but I never saw the very direct relevance to what's going on in our culture right now, especially in those first five chapters. So Yeah, yeah. Anything else you want to say as we conclude, Tom? No, I, I you know, I continue to work through it again, and you'll probably hear plenty more. So, <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the Theology Podcast. Uh, and uh, the fact that you've gotten all the way to the end uh, either demonstrates that you didn't know how to turn off uh, the show or you actually uh, got something out of it. Uh, and I'm hoping it's the second. And if that's the case, then uh, you can become a supporter if you're not if you're not already of the show. Uh, we have a Patreon page, and we're always happy to have new people join it and uh, support the show. We don't take anything. Uh, there's no money that uh, changes hands that in, that ends up in our pockets. It all goes into the expenses that uh, we incur to produce the show. So uh, we really, really do appreciate every gift that comes in to make the show possible. And if you'd like to be uh, part of the, the inner team, or the inner core that makes that happen every week, uh, please check out the Patreon page. Anyway, that's enough for now. Thanks a lot, and bye-bye. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, available on Amazon.